Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A beautiful summer day turns into a nightmare for Schuylkill Haven, Pennsylvania's favorite paperboy. He took his bike out to go for a ride, and he was never seen again until his remains were found several months later. Who would want to harm a 13-year-old? Who would be capable of that? It's a guessing game that has David Reed's friends and family stymied. You know, somebody knows. Somebody's seen something. Somebody had to put him there. Two decades later, lips are still sealed. We would just cry and cry. I never thought they would solve it. But then, a familiar face breaks his silence, revealing the skeletons hiding in his closet. It's one of those moments I was thinking, Eureka, this is it. How well do you know your neighbors? What lies behind the white picket fences? In the summer of 1985, there's one thing the folks in the coal country town of Schuylkill Haven can set their clocks by. Young David Reed, peddling past their homes at six in the morning, rain or shine, tossing the newspaper onto their front porches. David Reed was a kid that people knew in Schuylkill Haven. He was the local paper boy wearing a t-shirt with the name of the local newspaper on it. So people knew David. They often saw him on his bicycle. True enough, the 6,000 residents of this blue-collar town buried in the mountains of eastern Pennsylvania are their neighbor's keepers. And 13-year-old David Reed is a local favorite. David was definitely a people person. He loved everybody. Living on Haven's south side with his mom, two brothers, and a sister, and across town from big brother, Joe, David's is a close-knit family that survived some dark times. David had a very tragic family life. His father died in a motor vehicle accident when he was one years old. David had a brother who died of complications from diabetes. 
Despite all of the personal tragedies, David kept a smile on his face. With a heart as big as his glasses, David's always ready to lend a helping hand. He was a good kid. If he had needed something from the store, he'd be the first one to jump on his bicycle and ride to the store. This thoughtful teen spends the summer of 1985 coasting to and from his friends, tending to his paper route and tinkering with sprockets, chains, and brake pads. He had a few different bikes. We used to build our own bicycles. So we'd take a lot of frames and bicycle parts and just we'd build one. Not many kids can take pieces of bikes and put them together in a couple hours and ride down off the street, you know? But one summer night, David doesn't return home by dinner time. He was a 13-year-old kid who had a job, who had responsibilities, and so it was very out of character for him not to come home when his family was expecting him. And neighbors can't help wondering if their star paperboy is about to make headlines of his own. It's 4 o'clock on Wednesday, August 21st, and David is heading out the door for an afternoon spin. He grabs his favorite Pottsville Republican T-shirt and kisses his mom goodbye. He tell mom, I'm going for a bike ride. I'll be back later. He'd get on his bike and head downtown to meet his friends and just enjoy the summer day. But by 8 p.m., the sun has set and reliable David still hasn't swung open the family's front door. If he was going to be late, if he was at a friend's house, he would call the house and let someone know. David was very considerate. He, well, he knew mom would worry. But tonight, there's no call. On pins and needles, mom hopes he just made an impromptu visit and lost track of time. So she calls everyone she can think of, including David's close cousin, Pam. She called around to all his friends. With every phone call, David's mom got a no, we didn't see him, we don't know where he's at. But I can't even imagine what she must have been feeling. As the troubling news winds its way through the Reed family grapevine, Big Brother Joe organizes a search party, checking out all of David's favorite haunts. Well, the first place we looked would be downtown, the bank wall. If he's not there at a railroad, he'd be home. But the neighborhood sweep doesn't dust up David. Nearly 10 hours after the boy was last seen, Joe shows up empty-handed and breaks the bad news to his mom. She got very, very worried, and that's when she contacted the authorities. I still thought he would just show up and... Mom just overreacted, maybe. Schuylkill Haven's finest treat every citizen like family, and they quickly answer the call to action, hoping to bring David home for a much-anticipated reunion. It's early the next morning when Officer Kurt Muntz reports for his usual shift. This local boy has already gotten wind that his colleagues have spent the night searching for David, and they're still out looking. When a young 13-year-old male goes missing, it is very important for the community to find that person. The surrounding communities, too. Officers continue searching through the day, looking high and low for any sign of David, but they can't pick up his trail. 
And then, 24 hours after he disappeared, they make a very disturbing discovery. David's beloved bike, tossed aside like a candy wrapper in a secluded part of town. Something Corporal Rob Betnar finds suspicious. David's bicycle is found hidden in uh, weeds, and David is nowhere to be found. At first glance, it appears to be sinister in nature. David loves his bicycle. He would never leave that bike behind. Detectives and David's family are now convinced David ran into some kind of trouble on his ride. But what? I don't remember the police having any suspects or any leads. There was nobody. They just had no idea where to look. The main thing that went through my mind was in the area back then, they had colts that would move through, or maybe a, a traveling circus would be nearby, or he was abducted. Still hoping against hope that someone has seen their darling David, the Reed family isn't about to sit around and wait, so they step up their search. My brother and my sister put up flyers. We contact the media. You ask people. All you can do is just keep looking, keep asking. Eventually, you're going to get answers. But four months after David went missing, the answers still don't come. And no one's heart aches more than David's mom. Each passing day is more painful than the last. She would just cry and cry. He went missing in, in August, and uh, you know she prepared for the holidays early. I have Christmas presents for David. You know, wrapping him up, just hoping he would come home and get them. And she never lost hope that he would come home, but she was dying a little bit inside every day. Police want nothing more than to deliver a Christmas miracle. But with no evidence, no body, and no bad guy, their hands are tied. We can't explain where David is. We don't know what happened to him. There are no suspects. There is nobody that uh, disliked David that we knew of um, that would want to harm him. There's no issues with his family. Um, we're at a complete loss at this point. The investigation remains stalled for months. Summer turns to fall, fall to winter, and there's no sign of David. I was frustrated when they couldn't come up with any answers, and that's hard to swallow, especially when you're not sure what happened or where he is. Just as hope is evaporating, a resident stumbles across something frightening in the woods, not far from David's abandoned bicycle. To find an actual human skull was not a typical day in Schuylkill Haven. I can say that. Does this gruesome find belong to Schuylkill Haven's favorite paper boy? If so, what news will it report about the young boy's mysterious disappearance? 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression, perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat, and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. It's been three months since anyone in Schuylkill Haven, Pennsylvania, has seen hide or hair of young David Reed. With the holidays fast approaching, no one feels like giving thanks this year, not knowing if David is dead or alive. You don't give up hope. He's gonna walk through the door one day. Deep down inside, you don't wanna think he's gone. He just disappeared without a trace. People were afraid to let their kids go out. Kids were afraid to be out, you know, looking over their shoulder. It was, it was scary. A month later, on December 15, 1985, resident Steve Aiken calls into the PD. Steve tells dispatch that while looking for his wayward cat in the woods behind his Caldwell Street home, he made a grisly discovery, a partial skeleton, including a human skull. At that time, I responded to the scene. It did not cross my mind that it may have been David Reed. It's not something you would even want to think about, that a young man had passed away and now they found his skull. Police start their investigation in the most unlikely of places, the Bonefinder's kitchen. And when they take a look at the weathered cranium up close, their jaws drop. 
The first thing that came to my mind was we definitely have a situation here. Judging by the size and shape, it certainly might belong to a child or possibly a youngster around David's age. Steve takes Officer Munts to what's left of the skeleton, about 100 yards into the woods near an old cemetery. Steve and I walked up into the, the hilly area to examine where he found the skull, and not far from that area, you could see that there was a white t-shirt with a Pots Republican on it, and there were more bones there. It seems like Munts is looking at David Reed's final resting place. But how he died is anything but clear. Because these remains were out in the open for so long, there was no evidence that was able to be collected as far as uh, blood, trace evidence, um, no apparent uh, implement that was used to uh, kill the person. Um, there was nothing there. The remote spot is a place searchers never thought to look before. There's no clear path. It's heavily wooded. It's not an easy area to, to walk around in. The skeleton is sent to the medical examiner to confirm it's David. However, his mom doesn't need a report to tell her what her heart already knows. She was hysterical. I think she knew deep down inside. She was devastated because now you know your child is gone. He's not coming back. While they wait for the coroner's report to find out exactly how David died, they hit up residents on Caldwell Street. Perhaps someone remembers seeing something suspicious all those months ago. The canvas doesn't turn up much until they bump into a resident with more than just information. We talked to some people, mostly those individuals that were directly in front of the crime scene, and we did happen to uh, come across Joe Geiger. Joe lives a stone's throw away from where David's remains were found. He doesn't recall seeing anything unusual, but like Steve Aiken, Joe has become quite the bone collector. He did mention that his dogs were bringing some bones back to the house that he just felt were animal bones. At, then, at the time, I didn't think nothing of it. A concerned Joe tells police he kept the bones for his dog to play with, but now he can't hand them over soon enough. Detectives thank this good Samaritan for his help and send him on his way, hoping Joe's contribution will help the coroner determine what happened out in the woods. It was very difficult to decipher. You had remains, not a whole lot of physical evidence there other than the body. So it was in the pathologist's hand. Thankfully, the medical examiner is able to make a positive ID. Based on dental records, there's no doubt it's David. But determining the cause of death isn't as easy with no obvious signs of foul play. If there was a gun involved, may have been a bullet hole in the skull, or you know, if he was hit dramatically over the head with a rock, there should have been some skull cracks or crushes or something like that, and that wasn't the case. He does notice a fracture below David's right eye. It might just be an old injury. And a break in the back of David's skull could be an unfused bone, which is common in adolescence. So David's death is simply labeled undetermined, a vague ruling that doesn't sit well with the boy's family. When they come back and they said undetermined, in our eyes, that was a joke. I mean, that anybody, I think, would sit back and laugh at it and say, you got to be joking. you got to be kidding me. This is all you can come up with. And that just is unacceptable. 
Despite the coroner's ruling, police decide to treat the case as a possible homicide. And criminal investigation supervisor Tom McDaniel will never let an undetermined cause of death get in the way of an important case. We couldn't say what happened here. And so it was one of those cases that's not resolved, it's open, it'll always stay open. And that's one of those things as an investigator, you're passionate about what you do and it really troubles you. Thankfully, just two days later, a local stops by the station with a juicy tip. 22-year-old Shelley Vogel, who lives on the outskirts of Haven, says she has information about David Reed. Shelley shocks everyone in the room when she announces that she saw David the night he disappeared. Shelley tells police that she saw David in a blue-colored van traveling down the main street in Schuylkill Haven Borough. Shelley says David was riding in the passenger seat, but she didn't catch who was behind the wheel. When asked why she didn't speak up earlier, Shelley says she always thought David would come home. But as soon as she heard about his death, Shelley knew she had to step forward. But detectives aren't quite ready to put stock in Shelley's story. Shelley Vogel was known to our police department and the local community in town. Troubled young lady, uh, you know, had her alcohol problems, most likely had her drug problems, was not always on the right side of the law. Did Shelley really catch a glimpse of David that night? Police know taking the word of a drug addict can be risky, but when Shelley also provides the van's plate number, it kicks the investigation into high gear. We all believed that that blue van was the key to this case. That was going to provide us our answers, was going to lead us to our suspect, and then from that, we'd be able to solve David's case. As police hit the gas on their search for justice, they meet a host of new, not-so-friendly faces and learn that some folks in their peaceful town aren't who they seem. Winter's taken on quite a chill in Schuylkillhaven, Pennsylvania, since David Reed's remains were found in the woods. A mysterious death someone in town must know something about, yet no one is talking. Former TV reporter Melissa Fullerton is certain the town's tight-lipped nature isn't making detectives' jobs any easier. It had to be extremely frustrating because this was such a close-knit community and they know that someone knows who did it. Good thing police have just received a tip from Shelley Vogel. She not only saw David in a van the night he went missing, Shelley wrote down the plate number too. But when detectives check the plate against DMV records, it comes back empty. There's no record found. I can't tell you that's unusual because people do try and supply registration plates. We'll get a partial number, one number will be off, but it could be your eyesight, whatever. Or perhaps Shelley's memory is foggy because she had one too many that night. So detectives turn to clear-headed residents to help fill in the blanks. Somebody in the community would have to know somebody that owned a vehicle like this or matched that description. None of our friends had a blue van. You know, to my knowledge, there might have been just a handful of blue vans in Haven, but there were work vans. None really stuck out. For the next few months, police round up every blue van they spot, 
Even David's family joins the hunt. You don't know how many vans I chase down to try and look in, or you'd think you'd see him in one, and it just all dead ends. But you just look every day. You don't stop looking. Unfortunately, all the sleuthing doesn't drive home any promising clues, leaving David's family and detectives frustrated. Several months into this investigation, David's death remained just as much of a mystery as it did the first day we investigated it. When the investigation stalled, that was frustrating because there was nothing we could do. You know, we had to rely on the police to, you know, find out and there was just no answers. Despite pressure from David's family, no new leads surface. And nearly a year after his mysterious death, police filed David's case away. There is no cause of death. There is no manner of death. There are no suspects. There are no leads. There is no evidence. The case is on life support. It's nearly a hopeless situation. Honestly, I never thought they would solve it. I never thought that we would find out what happened to David. In fact, some members of David's family will never get to see how his case plays out. As the years went by and my mom passed away and then my sister, Jenny, she passed away. There's a, a tragedy like that. You want them to get closure before they pass. David's file remains boxed up in the state police basement. More pressing cases have taken its place. Even though David has never been forgotten, detectives can only do so much with so little. Rumors start to come into the case, such as David was seen hitchhiking. David may have been seen in a wooded area building a hut, trying to stay warm, that he was living in the, the cabooses and the train cars. Nothing ever developed to pursue in this case, tragically. Finally, in November of 2004, nearly two decades after David's remains were discovered, the Reeds get an unexpected call that David's case is being reopened, and it's got detectives' full attention. We were ecstatic. It's been a long road, so we weren't positive we were gonna get the answers we wanted, but we were just glad that somebody cared enough to give it another look. After years on the force, Corporal Rob Betnar is about to get the assignment of his career. It's now up to him to solve the mysterious death of David Reed. I wanted a shot at this case. It's one of the reasons I became a criminal investigator. I wanted those difficult cases, and, and this obviously fit the bill. A long time passed. In the back of my mind, if they couldn't find nothing in the first go around, and all these years passed, what could they possibly find this time around? A Herculean task that Betnar tackles head on. And after scouring hundreds of the original police documents, he comes across someone who just might erase the family's doubts. There was one individual who refused to cooperate with police 20 years earlier. And I thought it was odd that any adult would not participate in a police investigation when it was involving the death of a child. Seems then 37-year-old Aaron Carpenter was working near the area where David's remains were found. When police asked to speak with him during a neighborhood canvas, Aaron gave them the cold shoulder. Because Aaron didn't cooperate 20-some years ago, 
He was somebody that we did have to look harder at, and I wanted to know whether or not he was hiding something or he had any involvement in this case. Back then, Aaron lived a few miles outside of town. And when Betnar bends some ears, he learns Aaron's address hasn't changed, and neither has his bad boy image. When he was younger, he was feared by a lot of people. At one time, it was one of the bigger drug dealers in the area. He was somebody that you wouldn't mess with. He was an intimidating person. He was a, a bit of a bruiser. In fact, records show Aaron's been in and out of the clink most of his life, doing time for selling dope and scuffling with anyone and everyone. Aaron had a drug business, and he went to great lengths to protect that business. He had hurt people in the past for his business. Investigators wonder if David witnessed Aaron doing something shady and paid the ultimate price for it. So they quickly tracked down Aaron for a visit, hoping to find out if this brawler had a reason to flex his muscles on young David. When I caught up with Aaron, he was completely surprised. He was surprised that a police officer was there to see him, and he was even more surprised what I wanted to talk to him about. Investigators cut to the chase and ask why he was so evasive 20 years ago. His answer comes as no surprise. In 1985, Aaron is involved in narcotics. He does not have a good relationship with the police. He does not like the police, and so, he does not want to cooperate. He wouldn't help the police in any way, in any circumstance. Still, police ask Aaron if he recalls where he was around the time David disappeared. Even though 20 years have passed, Aaron admits he was somewhere he'll never forget. He advised me at the time that he was incarcerated. He was in prison, so this was an easy alibi to check out. It wasn't him. Knowing Aaron couldn't have killed David from behind bars, Police scratch him off their suspect list. But before they go, Aaron stops them in their tracks, suggesting someone else who might be worth investigating. Aaron Carpenter throws the investigation a bit of a curveball when he names the owner and operator of a blue-colored van, a Josh Fredrickson, who was not on our radar. And when Aaron says exactly why he's pointing the finger at Josh, detectives are blown away. He is an individual with a criminal history involving pedophilia. So it's one of those moments at that time, I think Rob was thinking, Eureka, this is it. Nearly two decades after David Reed's remains are found in the woods of Schuylkill Haven, Pennsylvania, his heartbroken family still has no idea who's to blame. You know whoever did it, somebody out there walking the streets alive, having birthdays and Christmases, and took my brother's life. We never thought that it could be anybody that we knew. We always thought that, you know, it was just some random person, some bad guy out there. Investigators agree. In fact, police are zeroing in on one dangerous stranger, a man named Josh Fredrickson, who lives one town over. Word on the street is that back in the 80s, this now 46-year-old trolled Schuylkill Haven and had a penchant for young boys. Certainly when there is a pedophile in the area of a murder or suspicious death, they immediately attract the attention of police. Detectives working the case back in 1985 never knew about Josh since there were no sex offender databases to search. 
But when Betnard checks the books on this purported predator in 2005, it seems their counterparts in nearby Pottsville do know Josh quite well. Josh had an extensive record of child sexual abuse. He was arrested just outside of Schuylkillhaven Borough. It was during a traffic stop by the Pennsylvania State Police where they uncovered numerous photos of children being sexually abused by Josh. The vehicle in question? A blue van. Just like the one witness Shelley Vogel claimed she saw David in the night he disappeared. We all felt that this was a promising lead, one of the best leads that the Reed case had ever had over the course of 20 years. And so does David's family. Dave left on his bicycle, but he could have had a flat tire. Josh could have offered Dave a ride at some point. Dave was a smart kid, but he was a very likable kid, trusting kid. He could have been fooled. While police wait for their colleagues to dig up additional info on Josh's criminal background, they get the shock of their lives. A surprise visit from none other than the man of the hour. It was surreal. I never called Josh, I never reached out for him. What are the chances of your top suspect in a homicide case to come up to the barracks and be dropped right in your lap like that? So it was unusual. Didn't know what he wanted. Thought it may be related to, to David's case. But this isn't Hollywood, and Josh has a much less dramatic explanation for dropping in. Josh says he's a Megan's Law registrant, an act that didn't exist in 1985, requiring convicted sex offenders to make their whereabouts known. And now that he's moved from Pottsville to Schuylkill Haven, he's simply here to update his record, as he does every year. They provide information on their whereabouts, what kind of vehicles they're driving, where they're living, where they're working. Corporal Betnar seizes the opportunity and escorts Josh back to an interrogation room for a little chat about David's case. Although this sketchy suspect has every reason to be on edge, he remains cool as a cucumber. He wasn't nervous. He appeared to be honest and forthcoming with his answers. And I brought up his past, and it was painful for him. It bothered him. Josh readily admits he was busted for being a sex offender back in the 80s, but has since mended his ways. He said that he didn't know David's family and wasn't involved in any shape or form in this case. I, I don't know any David Reed. I never took anyone to the train tracks. Tell me where you were living at. When police ask Josh to recall where he was around the time David turned up dead, he says he was doing 10 to 15 years in prison after being busted with the photos in his van. He says, this is where I was at the time of David Reed's disappearance in August of 1985. We are able to go back and see that he was indeed incarcerated. So it was impossible for him to have perpetrated this crime. With heavy hearts, detectives strike Josh off their most wanted list and try to regroup, afraid this uphill battle might just be insurmountable. We were chasing a pipe dream, a fantasy, and at the same time, our best lead, a pedophile, also deteriorates right in front of us, and we are now left with nothing. Fortunately, ever since the case was reopened seven months ago, people have started talking, and rumors are once again surfacing, proving that even after 20 years, the legend of David Reed is alive and well. We heard uh, he was abducted by the occult. We heard he ran away from home. There was all these different rumors throughout the course of 20-some years as to how and why David died. 
Though there's one story police start to hear over and over, a story they've never heard before, and it focuses on someone most unexpected, Joe Geiger, the concerned citizen who turned over some of David's bones in 1985. Over the years, Joseph Geiger had confided in other people that he believed that David was stealing something from him, and he was upset about it. Seems Joe was convinced David was to blame, and he sent David a message he wouldn't soon forget. That would be a motive to at least confront this individual, perhaps to try and teach him a lesson, never to steal from him again. You think you can mess with me? You can't mess with me! You don't know who I am! And it appears Joe's close friends decided not to rat him out to police when David turned up dead. Some of it all may have to do with the circles that Joe was running in, that these are not necessarily people who are supportive of solving any type of crime. It's a little bit of a criminal's club, if you will. When I found out that Bender had Joe Geiger under the microscope, then I started wondering, Maybe, you know, some of the talk is accurate and we need to give these names to Corporal Bentner so he can talk to these people that started these rumors. Detectives decide to put their faith in the latest rumor that's the talk of the town. Can you tell me some of those rumors? And in June of 2005, seven months after David's case is reopened, they track down the now 40-year-old who's married with a young son and living in neighboring Pottsville, barely recognizable as the same man who came to police two decades ago. I called Joseph Geiger around 8 o'clock at night. I introduced myself. I advised him that I was looking into a death investigation, the death of David Reed that had occurred roughly 20 years ago. And I told Joseph that I thought he could be helpful towards the investigation. Joe takes this call from his past in stride and immediately offers up as much detail as he can remember from that time long ago. He referenced his dogs. The dogs were bringing the bones back. He told me he was on television. He indicated to me that he helped look for David Reed after his reported missing. So it was a good conversation. And he told me that he would give me a call uh, a few days later to set up an interview time. And at their scheduled meeting three days later, Betnar finally gets to hear what Joe really knows. His confidence was starting to unfold. He was rattled. And I said, Joe, what do you think happened to David Reed? But what Joe has to say isn't what they're expecting to hear. When Geiger comes in, he is in a, uh, an agitated state. And what he does is he indicates that another person was involved in David's death. Will Joe's revelation give police the clue they've awaited for so long? And will it be enough to close the book on Schuylkill Haven's most notorious murder mystery? Twenty-five years after David Reed turned up dead in the woods, police have their sights set on Joe Geiger. The man locals suspect killed the boy. And now, this one-time concerned citizen who helped find David's remains now makes no bones about his involvement. Joseph Geiger gives us the break we've been looking for in this case for 20-some years. 
claims to have intimate knowledge of David Reed's death, claims that he is present when David Reed is killed. Joe goes on to say that back in 1985, he was too afraid to tell police what really happened. Joe admits that he wanted to teach David a lesson for stealing things from his property, but insists he only wanted to scare the teen. However, when Joe recruited his old pal, hothead Eddie Kaplan, Eddie had other ideas. Eddie Kaplan is involved with people like Geiger, and you know, they're involved in parties and alcohol and other things, and uh, probably the kind of young man who David Reed shouldn't have been with. Joe tells police the game of revenge began when he and Eddie spotted David out riding his bike near the woods that Wednesday in 1985. The pair asks David to go with them into a nearby train car to have a chat. And David doesn't think twice about trailing. David hides his own bicycle in the weeds, which was David's habit and custom of doing, so that people wouldn't steal his bike or take it while he was back on the train tracks. With his bike safely stowed, David tags along with the big boys. David Reed, Joe Geiger, and Eddie Kaplan go back to the train car. The confrontation begins. David Reed pleads with Kaplan, tells him he had nothing to do with it. Joe Geiger tells police that Eddie hits David, he falls back. Don't hurt me, please don't hurt me. Hits his head and is motionless. At that point, Joe Geiger said he left the train car and did not return. Joe's story sounds plausible, but the trouble is detectives have never spoken to Eddie, and they can't arrest him based on Joe's statement alone. We know we, we had to grind through this and, and get all the details fleshed out. So we had to release Joe and go back out on the investigative trail and track down Eddie Kaplan. It was frustrating, but um, it had to be done. It's not hard for detectives to locate Eddie. He's been living in Haven all this time. Eddie's surprised to see detectives on his doorstep and seems downright shocked when police tell him that Joe Geiger has just pegged him as David's killer. Eddie admits he was in the caboose that fateful day, but he says things didn't go down quite the way Joe said. Eddie Kaplan relates a very similar circumstance as described by Geiger. Same location, same circumstance, except he is not the puncher. Eddie insists it was Joe who threatened the boy, but then he watched as something in Joe just snapped. And in a fit of anger, he strikes David. He hits him one or two times in the face. Then Joe dumps David's body in a shallow grave, where Joe's dogs find his remains four months later. But the conflicting stories leave detectives certain one or both of these men are behind David's death. But who? Before they can arrest either, investigators have to get a new ruling on David's cause of death, since the original ME called it undetermined. We had no evidence of trauma to the rear of David's head. We could not corroborate that aspect of both of their statements. And without that, we still were not going to be able to come to a cause of death or a manner of death. 
So Betnar comes up with an idea, one that forces David's family to unearth a mountain of painful emotions. He needed David's remains exhumed. If that's what it took, you know, to give him what he needs to nail whoever was responsible, yes, we were up for it. The boy's body is sent to an anthropologist in Florida to corroborate the witnesses' testimonies. And sure enough, the latest technology proves detectives' good old-fashioned police work correct. He was able to discern that David had suffered some type of blunt force trauma. His findings were consistent with the statements of Geiger and of Kaplan that there was an assault that resulted in his death. The anthropologist's findings are enough to change the ruling to homicide. With this new information, all Detective Betnar has to do is prove exactly who dealt the knockout blow. Joe Geiger or Eddie Kaplan. And that's when Betnar remembers something that just might help him ink an arrest warrant. Joseph Geiger, when he came for his interview, he signed a Miranda card. He gave us a written statement, all left-handed. David Reed had a fracture under his right eye, which would be more consistent with him being struck by a left-handed person. Kaplan's right-handed. A lot of the pebbles really started to pile up in favor of Joe Geiger being involved in this assault, which ultimately caused David's death. One person had David's lower jawbone at their house. That was Joseph Geiger. One person had a motive to attack David Reed. That was Joseph Geiger. On August 21st, 2008, the 23rd anniversary of David's disappearance, police arrest Joe Geiger. Realizing the jig is up, Joe calmly admits that even though Eddie was present, he's the one who struck David that fateful day in 1985, though he never meant to kill him. I wish my mom and sister would have been alive to see it. I mean, uh, they're at peace, but this is something you'd want them to see knowing we got them. Based on Joe's confession and Eddie's cooperation, detectives decide not to press charges against Eddie Kaplan. But Joe will pay the price for David's murder. And ironically, it was Joe's own dogs who led police to their murderous master. It is quite haunting thinking that Joe Geiger was responsible for this, tried to sort of hide the crime and get away from it. And then here he has these young dogs that are bringing his victim's bones back to his house, not letting him forget this crime. It is very much poetic justice. In February of 2009, nearly a quarter century after David's death, Joe Geiger pleads guilty to involuntary manslaughter. A judge sentences Joe to only two years in jail, putting him back on the streets in 2011, a ruling that doesn't sit well with David's family. If you take a life, you should spend your life behind bars. I mean, two years for killing someone? If I would see him, I can't guarantee what I would do but he's gonna feel something. Now you can take to the bank. With the murder of David Reed solved, 
the town of Schuylkill Haven can finally rest easy. As the Sunday circular flops on locals' doorsteps, people can't help but remember their favorite paperboy, who was taken long before his time. People should remember David as a lovable boy. He loved life, he loved family. He was just a, a good kid. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.